0: I'm very interested in wicked problems and putting on different hats and asking questions in different ways. I would even argue that my research is not that cutting edge, but rather I'm far more interested in synthesizing disciplinary fields and deepening conversations by understanding others' languages. I like to say I teach artists how to engineer, engineers how to art, and everyone how to sustain their passion, which is how I define entrepreneurship.
1: Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Nathaniel Stern, an artist, writer, and teacher who holds a 50-50 dual appointment at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee as a professor in art and design and a professor in mechanical engineering, where he teaches artists how to engineer engineers how to art and everyone how to sustain their work with entrepreneurial thinking nathaniel's most recent art project a traveling exhibition called the world after us imaging techno aesthetic futures is a fascinating and constantly mutating physical melange of botany and discarded electronics that challenges viewers to imagine what our digital media will be and do in the world long after us one aspect of the world after us project called The Wall After Us, was recently featured as part of the Art exhibition at the University of Johannesburg. The exhibition launched the newly formed Creative Microbiology Research Collab at the University of Johannesburg, led by Professor Leora Farber. Nathaniel also has a long association with Johannesburg and the Witt School of Arts. With a Masters from the Interactive Telecommunications Programme at New York University, he was responsible for the designing and teaching the first years of the Interactive Media Studio Programme in the Digital Arts Department. Over that time, he also won the Brett Kebel Art Award in both 2003 and 2004, thus earning the first recognition for Interactive and Digital Art in the South African art world. Following his time in Johannesburg, he went on to do a PhD in Mechanical Engineering at Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland, writing his dissertation on interactive art and embodiment. Since his PhD, Nathaniel has created a dazzling range of exploratory art projects, often in collaboration with other artists, scientists, and engineers. In fact, the journal Scientific American says Stern's art is tremendous fun and fascinating in how it is investigating the possibilities of human interaction and art. I urge listeners to visit his website to get a grasp of the extent of his artistic and rightly practice. In this discussion, we talk about the TWU project and the experience of installing the wall after us, working remotely from the U.S. together with the curatorial team at the UJ Gallery. We also explore Nathaniel's thinking about aesthetics and the relationship between aesthetics and activism, especially the climate activism that is central to his work. Finally, we unpack the Startup Challenge, which Nathaniel directs at the Louvre Entrepreneurship Center at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I think that the expanded notions of both innovation and entrepreneurship that Nathaniel deploys in the program of great value for similar work at WITS and in South Africa more generally. Useful links to Nathaniel's website, books, and exhibitions can be found in the show notes for this podcast. Nathaniel, great pleasure to be speaking to you. And really, the occasion for this was your involvement in the very first exhibition symbiotica art or symbio art that our colleague Profliora Faber organized as a launch event for her new creative microbiology research lab at UJ. And in fact, I spoke to her about this time last year on an Arup podcast when it was still something that she was in the process of pulling together. So it was really wonderful to see the exhibition and also to see your art, <laughs> uh, And particularly your creative technologies approach to imagining a techno future, which I remember you were doing in a workshop at the ASEA, that's the International Society for Electronic Arts, back in Durban in 2018. So can you talk us a bit through the project and how it's evolved? And I understand it's also a traveling show. So it has traveled from Milwaukee to Johannesburg. Where else has it gone? And what has been the reception?
0: Yeah, thanks. Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me on the show, Christo. It's great to see you again. I grew up in New York, but moved to Johannesburg in my early 20s and spent six years there and I'm a permanent resident with an ID book. And so I often joke that I lived in New York until my early 20s, but I actually grew up in South Africa. And Christo was a great colleague during my time at WITS while I was teaching there. And I learned a lot. I was pretty young and strong headed at the time. And uh, I've learned some humility over the years and rightfully so, I think I'm a better person and a better artist for it. So thank you for our time together. That being said, yeah, the world after us has been an interesting, you know, five-year journey almost at this point now. So the question that it began with was, I was looking at my mobile phone and I was wondering what it might look like in a million years. And I asked that not from a design question or from the perspective of... Technology, but rather instead of as a thing, as matter, as waste, as garbage, you know, other than blackberries, we don't think of our phones as so much garbage, but they are, you know, and we understand there are little bits of the Congo and little bits of China. And then where might they wind up? And so this led to a series of questions, thankfully funded by the University of Wisconsin and Milwaukee from their office of research. And that really helped to grow these questions into a, a large body of work. The World After Us, which is based on Alan Wiseman's book, The World Without Us. He asks the question, if humans were to disappear tomorrow in an instant from like some kind of plague or whatever, or bacteria, how long would it take for non-human life to retake the planet? And the answer is not very long at all. He goes into detail about plants and insects more specifically. And so I wanted to ask this question also, not as some kind of utopian bullshit or dystopian problem area, because life finds a way survival of the fittest doesn't mean survival of the best it's what's fit for this environment and so i was imagining a more of a solar punk cybernatural future and so i started by literalizing wiseman's question instead of having plants taking over you know houses and buildings and Going through the cracks, I literally just like gutted an iMac and planted wheatgrass in it and started taking photographs. And I called that apple grass or planting herbs and spices in a Dell. And that would be my farm in the Dell or an aloe in a phone. And that would be Aloe World because I'm a nerd like that. For those of you unfamiliar, the first program you write in any given programming languages is Hello World. And that's where it really began. And that's what brought me to Durban in 2018, where I was asking this question of what else, how else, where else. What does this look like? What does this mean? I even started working with a soil scientist and asking questions around, like, how might this impact the plants, these chemicals, these materials and metals? Interestingly enough, we did some tests and it was the inverse of what we expected. The plants were actually cleaning the soil rather than being infected by the soil. And so in Durban, we decided to make it much more of a interactive, you know, participatory, more is a better way of word for it. Exhibit, I brought three undergraduate and one graduate student with me, thanks to that funding I had from the university. And we collected indigenous waste. Like we had a partnership with Natel, and we went over and like dumpster dived for waste. And then we had workshops with locals and a partnership with the botanical gardens where they were gutting computers and putting plants inside of them. And it was this kind of fun, playful question around what else. And I wound up then kind of moving in a direction where I got to be grander in scale, because for me, human-sized, body-sized, affective spaces very much need to be addressed in order to look at the scale of a given problem, but then also got to be a little more scientific.
1: I'm particularly interested in the way that you brought various scientists with very different research interests into the project.
0: Yeah, and I will say it's been really fun in that way. As you know, my undergraduate degree is in fashion. For those of you who can't see me, it's very obvious that my degree is fashion. And then um, my master's was computer art, my PhD in an electrical engineering department. Um, currently, I sit between a department of art, a department of mechanical engineering and an entrepreneurship center. And so I'm very interested in wicked problems and putting on different hats and asking questions in different ways. I would even argue that my research is not that cutting edge. But rather, I'm far more interested in synthesizing disciplinary fields and deepening conversations by understanding others' languages. I like to say I teach artists how to engineer, engineers how to art, and everyone how to sustain their passion, which is how I define entrepreneurship. And so I reached out to quite a few different scientists early on in this phase, looking at things like, could we turn computers into fuel through a hydrothermal liquefaction, for example? Might we make compostable phones? There was a guy at Cooper Union I was talking to and elsewhere. In the end, you know, I'm an opportunist. The people who want to work with me and I want to work with them and the questions that we wind up digging deeper into is, is where it leads me. And so the two things I got to work on with Johannes Lehman, who's the soil scientist from Cornell University, and we actually just published a paper with the Leonardo Journal around some of our other research together, The two things I got to do with him with one, we could study that soil. The other is he actually is one of the world's most renowned scientists for biochars. And for those of you unfamiliar with biochars, this is a method where you work with waste, usually bio-waste and matter, and you slowly heat it in the absence of oxygen. And what this does through charring this material is three things. First, it gets rid of that bio-waste. Second, it captures a significant amount of carbon from the atmosphere more than any other platform. In fact, the reason it's not used more commonly is that scaling it is difficult. And then the third is those chars, and this is where the soil science part comes in. They can be used like charcoal in your soil towards bringing minerals into the soil and spreading them. And so he was looking at you know, that waste and using it in soil and using it to make ink and using it to make bricks and using it to, like turn this waste into treasure somewhere else. I was like, well, he's got an aging machine. Like that's basically what a carburetor is, right? A carbonizer is. It's, he's artificially aging manure or plants or books. And so I went to him and I said, hey, dude, can I like toss some phones in your stuff? <laughs> you know, that initial question of what does a phone look like in a million years got to be answered. And Johannes Lehman, actually, interestingly enough, he himself has spent some time. And this is why when I reached out to him, he immediately wrote back to me unlike many of the other scientists, was super excited about my work. He both has a connection with the African continent through his former research and work, and he's also a huge art collector. In fact, I remember walking into his house when he invited me over because I wound up staying at Cornell, and he gave me access to his labs on the weekends, and I'm sitting there cooking phones and (laughs) and laptops, etc. And I look up, and there's an Aubrey Feree photograph sitting in his lounge. For those who don't know, he's a wonderful South African born Afrikaans photographer. In fact, he used to also curate, gave me my first solo show in Joburg, well, in Pretoria anyway. And he now lives in Germany. And so that's how he knows Johannes. And we would literally like freeze, cook, smash, blend, burn in beakers and tubes. It was really exciting when I would like send him stuff and he would send it back. And his scientific method wasn't very different than like how I work in the printmaking studio, right? Like I test the papers, I test the times, there's notes on them. I would often get people asking questions like, have you tried stomach acid? Have you tried, you know, bringing it down, you know, pouring liquid nitrogen on it? No, let's do it, you know? And so people would invite me to their labs to do so. I got Prasenjit Gupta-Sarma as an experimental physicist here at UW-Milwaukee. We did some stuff in his lab. Konstantin Sobolov, who I wound up working with later on another extended project from the world after us as a civil engineer worked on stuff there and really this was fun like one of my students got to like literally I remember posted this Instagram of a slow motion Blackberry in a blender and was like I blend phones for a living y'all like I get paid to do this shit right and so it's experimental and fun you know will it blend was was a common uh, (laughs) recurrence in the lab but then there's also some serious questions around what else these things might become. And so, you know, that I call them fossils with a PH, like my phone fossils to artificially age those phones. Then there was in another area, what I called my server farms, which was the plants kind of growing out of, into and around phones and laptops and more. Then there was what I called my utilities. And I'll get back to how these three all tie together. And utilities were much more like human intervention, slightly more utilitarian. What else might these become? And so, for example... I blended a series of phones, extended them with oil, made paper out of my old t-shirts, and actually made ink out of phones called phony ink and turned them into phony prints where I printed images, obviously, of phones on this paper. And it was legible. You could see the dust and the deterioration and the elements from the phones in the, in the paper and the ink. Less usable, but more provocative. I did things like melt down aluminum IMAX and pour them into casts of a hammer or a wrench or a screwdriver. Um, And in another one, I call them my circuitous tools. I CNC routed like a saw out of a motherboard, my my hacksaw, or (laughs) did it also for an axe, my hacks, and for a trowel. And so again, kind of trying to provoke. And one other kind of area then that I invested in, and this was the piece that traveled the most, was what I called the wall after us, as opposed to the world after us.
1: And that's the piece that was shown in Joburg. That's right. Which, remarkably, you did remotely. Because when I saw it, I thought, Nathaniel's in Joburg and he hasn't even contacted me. (laughs) Ah, of course I would contact you.
0: Yeah, you were the only one who thought I was coming. So I will say it launched here in Milwaukee just before the pandemic. And it was meant to go to like five, six museums after that. And then when the pandemic hit, it just wasn't feasible anymore. It was very well received here when it launched. The wall took up three rooms and the towers as well. And I'll talk about those in a moment when it was in Wired and Fast Company and it. But when the pandemic started to fade, I did wound up traveling it to upstate New York and Binghamton with another site-specific installation with Konstantin Sobolov. And then it went to Michigan. And then after all of that travel of the entire exhibition, so this was like all of this work, multiple rooms, 200 page catalog, seven minute documentary, panels and talks and workshops and more. I said, well, I'm busy working on my next big five year project now. It's really difficult to travel this whole show. Stuff's moving much further down the line now where I'm wanting to book the next one. Let's break it up and start showing individual pieces or site-specific installations, rather the entire exhibition do it on group shows, and that might have a bigger impact at this point. And so that's how it wound up in Johannesburg. The wall after us very much is what it sounds like, where it's electronic waste laptops and phones and blenders and speakers and things that people have thrown away, creeping and crawling up entire walls, surrounded by cables and audio tape and plants and more. When I show it in a place that's drivable to, I also have these huge towers that are between 10 and 15 feet tall that are electronic waste on huge spikes that are bigger than us. And it's meant to be both kind of beautiful and horrifying, right? Like we recognize this waste, we recognize these materials, we've thrown them away ourselves. And it's much bigger than we can even imagine, you know? Where are they now? Where are our phones now? There's like 5 billion phones in a given year. Um, And those those are just the ones we sell, not the ones we produce and then throw out. And there's lots of problematic. So I want to address a couple of the questions you asked first and foremost. Yes, remotely. It's very important to me to practice what I preach. You know, this was looking at e-waste, but also energy usage and carbon sequestration are huge parts of how I try to live and breathe. And I even have a climate action startup at the moment that was recently funded by the National Science Foundation. So flying out there both monetarily for what Joe Burke has and what my budget is with as a father of five didn't make sense, but also the amount of carbon that would be used. Sending this work over there didn't make sense. And so we agreed early on with the team over there, fantastic team that I got to work with at UJ, thanks guys, shout out, that we would use local indigenous waste and local indigenous plants.
1: We got our own here. <laughs> Lots of waste.
0: Lots of waste. You know, it's site conditioned every time we do it. It was different in Milwaukee. It was different in Michigan. It was, in fact, in Michigan, they have a semi-permanent version of the wall in their office space. Now they commissioned a piece to live there. So we have a formula already of, you know, this is the size and shape of all the shelves. This is how much mid-sized waste, small waste, large waste you use per you know square meter. This is how you set it up. And we would send back and forth images and plans with my studio manager, Laura Bagay, myself, Brent, and the team over there. And I love this about them. There were individuals there that took real pride. Sinead specifically, Sinead Fletcher, took real pride in how they decided to set it up aesthetically and how that dialogue with me went. And I'm really happy with that engagement. I'll also say this is true when it comes to the waste. When I first started on this series, I imagined struggling to find the waste. And once I found paths and areas, it was so easy. Like we had more than we could do it. But what we wound up working on was we work with UW Surplus, which is the surplus office here at UWM. And their kind of flow is when a professor is no longer using a machine and no one else in their department is going to use it, they give it there. And then first they try to see if there's another professor who might use it. Is it good? Like the kind of machine that I use is much more powerful than the kind of machine an English professor might use, depending on what their research is, for example. Then they try to see if they can sell it at a huge discount to graduate students. Then they see if they can sell it at a discount to the public or give it to a nonprofit. And the last step, if no one will take it, is they actually strip it and melt it down to recycle everything. So I would intervene right there between those two points of no one is going to use it and they're going to strip it down. And then and only then would I use that waste towards my work. And we wound up finding certain ways. Like I know with the idiosyncrasies of being a contemporary artist, I know better than anyone which phones blend the best, which ones smash better when you... So there were specific things we liked to use. We also then, when the installation ended, gave it back for them to recycle. And in fact, when I did the commission with the Crassel Art Center in Michigan, when this is really important to me, all of my studio assistants get paid by the hour. They also get a cut of primary sales. So Laura, my studio manager, got 10% of that commission. And I gave 10% of the commission also as a donation to the UW surplus office. I think the incredible work that they're doing, part of what I'm trying to do is amplify that. To then get to like, okay, why travel at what do I do? I wanna just really quickly do my art spiel. And then I promise I'll let you ask more questions. You know what, getting me to shut up is the problem, not getting me to speak. But with my shows at this point in my career, I love doing long-term projects. I've gotten back to a point because of the blockchain, and that's something we can talk about as well, where I'll also do short-term releases, but then I'll physicalize that work and materialize that work. I wanna make clear for those of you unfamiliar with the blockchain, I only work with green chains, proof of stake, that are not terrible for the environment because otherwise that would go against how I work as well. I never work with proof of work. So proof of work is the blockchain-based technology that's terrible for the environment. A transaction on proof of stake is actually less energy intensive than a PayPal transaction. So that is where I work.
1: Okay. I'm glad to hear that because we had a brief flurry here. That's in Joba generally, you know, everybody was wanting to get into NFTs, remember, you know, and we even had librarians saying they're wanting to use NFTs, blockchain for interlibrary loans, for God's sake. <laughs> but, you know, just looking into NFTs and the back-end technology, energy consumption,
0: Yeah, on the minor tangent over here, first and foremost, my interest in NFTs and blockchain, and I wrote a small like popular press piece about this back in early 2021, I think it was, was in the conservation aspect of it. You know, the idea of someone taking care and custodianship for it. That being said, when Ethereum was proof of work, I very rarely used it. I only used it for one of one and I always sequestered triple back. I was mostly on the Tezos blockchain, which was the first kind of green NFT chain with their proof of stake. Once Ethereum moved to proof of stake, then I started using it more. Um, and for those of you unfamiliar, but maybe I'm talking a foreign language here, uh, You know, I'll put on my professorial hat for a moment. There's two core technologies to cryptocurrency. And one of them is the public ledger, the idea that there's millions of copies of this ledger that says who owns something. And that's why it's unbreakable. That's why it's uncrackable. If anyone tries to say they own it, millions of other computers say they own it. The second part of it, how do you get onto that ledger in the first place? And Bitcoin was the first that cracked this problem. And you have like hundreds of computers at the same time, brute force guessing numbers to try to get on the chain. That's where the energy is hugely problematic for proof of work. Proof of stake works more like a caucus. Various people say that they believe that this pool or this, this organization or this institution is trustworthy. And so... Instead of competing by doing lots and lots of math, it's just the most trustworthy of the stakers instantly makes a decision. This is 99.999 more energy efficient.
1: But Nathaniel, with the NFT, the appeal for digital artists who are producing work, it's always been a problem. How do you sell digital works? The NFT was, was a blessing for that. You know, we think of people. But for other works, like when the whole nFT thing was really taking off, and you had museums, you had magnum photos, for instance, you know offering nfts of of their classic silver prints, and all you 're getting when you buy the nft is you're getting a guaranteed jpeg of that that physical work, so beyond digitally produced art nfts most they give you a jpeg of let's say, a, a silver print out of the Magnum Archive.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really big discussion to have. And there's a number of things I could say in response to this. And I'll, I'll say just a couple. One, first and foremost, the idea of ownership of art in the first place. Like I could own a, a poster of the Mona Lisa or I could own the Mona Lisa. And if if you just want the Mona Lisa, the picture, you just buy the poster, right? If you actually own it, like most people don't say it. It's the cachet. It's the book. Like I'm, you know, that's, you're obviously not that kind of collector to be able to say, I own the thing is often more important than hanging around. And there are people who love to display their digital work. There's beautiful displays. There are versions of prints, but like the mind of a collector is unknowable at its core to some extent. Right. And, you know, comic books are collectible. Baseball cards are collectible. Right. I could have a copy of amazing fantasy number 15, which is the first appearance of Spider-Man, or I could have Amazing Fantasy number 15, right? And then even then, would I ever take it out? No, I'd be in a dark room, in a vault, right? Protected, right? So for a collector, for someone who's digitally native and understands digital assets, the NFT makes sense. And they're not all just JPEGs. Like some, the, the, To me, the biggest innovation of NFTs. is is the generative art space. And Art Blocks kind of really innovative that. And for those of you unfamiliar with generative art, some people argue Saul the was the first generative artists, but basically you come up with a formula and there's a similarity between all of the works, but there's a slight difference. It's like variations on randomness. And what Art Blocks did, which is really clever, was they did what's called long form generative art, where artists would write their code in a way that every kind of random generation would have a similarity between them, but they'd all be different.
1: Like Bored Apes, old Yacht Club Apes.
0: <laughs> well, Bored Apes were pre-rendered. And I also don't consider them artworks. I consider them collectibles. And their value proposition is the community around them rather than the JPEG itself, right? Which is why you've seen those kinds of NFTs like Bored Apes and others, other than the firsts, like CryptoPunks, go down significantly. But the artwork has not gone down significantly in value post-bust of the NFT space. A lot of it is still very valuable. Anyway, this platform, instead of Bored Apes, which is pre-rendered and then you get a random one, what happens is when you buy the NFT, it uses your transaction hash on the ledger as the seed for your random number. And it locks in permanently, even when you sell it. So you don't exactly know what you're going to get, but you know there's variations of it and there's various probability factors. And it becomes a really kind of fun way of playing with collection and support and patronage and art. We've moved it off of the world after us, but I'm not an Ethereum or an NFT maxi by any stretch of the imagination. And I think there's huge problems in the crypto space. I think there's huge problems in the NFT space. I think it's also a microcosm of the art world and the capitalist world more generally. And the first work that I was going to make in the NFT space was after the big, big bull $69 million sale. I planned, Christo, I planned to do something like Wikipedia art or Twisted Space. I planned to take a piss. I was like, okay, it's hit the mainstream. Let's make a pyramid scheme artwork that makes fun of all these jerks, Right. But then, because of the kind of person I am, you know, with Wikipedia art, I spent a year learning how to be a Wikipedia editor with Tweets in Space. We spent six months looking into the best ways to beam messages. I started doing my research and I reached out to people like Rhea Myers and Simon DLR. Because of my long history with digital art, I had connections with people who were early adopters. And what I found was surprisingly earnest individuals who were leveraging this like highly libertarian capitalist platform towards socialist ends towards creative possibilities towards asking questions around what a trans-action might look like in this monetary system but that wasn't monetary and that excited me and that that kind of intervention into the extremes of capitalism is why i work in that space and i don't laugh at when i get paid don't get me wrong i released a piece with Artbox. it's the most i ever made in a single day or in a single year from sales of my artwork i paid off all my credit card debt it was great comma end it was proof of stake. I'm in collections that I care to be in. And, you know, although the flippers were real, like people just trying to make a bug, I think only like four of the 250 works we sold are on the secondary market. A lot of people are actually keeping that work and holding on to it and care about it.
1: Just question that comes from that, you remember in the beginning of the 20th century, even into the first decades, there was always the split between contemporary art, fine art, The kind of work you would see on Documenta that could shade into activist art, but was primarily still about analog objects, or even if it wasn't objects, it was concepts that could manifest in analog. And digital art was always somewhere different. You know, like Asia, for instance, was where you would see really cutting edge digital art. But you wouldn't see cutting-edge digital art outside of those quite specialized contexts. What do you think, you know, that period of 2020, 2021, COVID lockdowns, the sort of digitalization of society to a degree that was never previously experienced, and, for instance, artists like you working and, and making good money out of NFTs, Has that changed that relationship between the digital art stream and the high art, high contemporary art stream?
0: It's a good question, and I think it's more individualized than that. There are museums who still don't even show photography or who still won't even show video, right? And so they're not going to be quick to get into that space. I think part of the reason we saw this boom with collectibles was simply because the crypto boroughs made a shit ton of money on Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then suddenly they were wealthy and they had leisure money. So they understood digital assets and they started collecting them, right? Now, that being said, I think some of the most important voices in the crypto art space and and the digital art space, but I I say crypto art spaces because the curators who have been working with digital art for the longest People like Tina Rivers Ryan at Buffalo AKG Museum, which was the museum that had the first photographic exhibition in the United States and was the first to collect a lot of digital art and crypto art. People like Regina Hersani, who's the associate curator at the Museum of the Moving Image. These are people who were highly critical of the crypto space while also being engaged with digital art all along, who were saying, no, we've already had the possibility of checksum, for example to make sure that there are no copies. And like digital art has been sold and collected for years. And so those kind of museum spaces now had a platform and were given a much bigger voice. What happened with all this money being invested in it then was places like Art Basel Miami and Christie's and who had their first NFT auction in 2021 and, and have had just had their like 10th or 11th now started taking the collectability of digital art far more seriously. I mean, we've been seeing digital art in museums since, like, I remember in 2001, the bit streams at the Whitney, you know, and, and you've had bit forms around since like 2000, you know, purely digital art gallery in Chelsea and New York. And you've had people collecting that work, museums collecting that work, cutting edge museums, contemporary ones, But now the kind of ownership model of that and collectors taking it more seriously has shifted. And what I love to see, as you're seeing more and more people in the crypto space that came to Flip or because they wanted that art, you see them starting to collect real world art now as well. And you're seeing more and more serious collectors starting to collect NFTs and own that digital work in a way as people become more comfortable with digital assets. And what we forget is we we already work with lots of digital assets all the time. Like how many video movies do I own through Amazon? The difference is, it's a slightly different technology to make it ownable, right? In a way that's unrepeatable. And audible. So I do think yes, absolutely. The the comfort with Zoom and sitting in my house and owning things digitally and spending my credit card has absolutely shifted how contemporary collectors and contemporary museums are now wanting to show and talk about art. Even this kind of recent. Debate on Twitter with Jerry Saltz and Refi. Sorry, I don't even really know his name, and I probably should. But there's these huge like battles around this, you know, this discussion around Saltz kind of really hating on his work, and then him kind of giving the class, "You didn't come to my studio, and you don't understand." But in the end, like that dialogue is something that wouldn't even have happened five years ago. He wouldn't have even painted mind far worse than negative reactions is dismissal. And so I think that dialogue is important and interesting. And like, I mean, it's a battle I've had in terms of that kind of dismissal for a long time. And I talk about it briefly in the in the introduction of my first book. But at the same time, giving any time or devotion to any artwork is necessary to see its depth, right? I'm not one to normally be like, well, that's not art, because that's a misnomer. What you really mean is I don't see the value out of it. And I almost regret saying that's not art about the bored apes. But what I really meant there was its value proposition was as a being part of a, a member of a club, right? And and that's what a lot of those PFPs were about, right? Whereas that is not the value proposition for those artworks that are looking for custodianship and ownership and exhibition and dialogue. Do all artists have the same value proposition for their work? And I hate to use that language of capitalism, but I'm, I'm going to use it for a moment in that, like for me, my value proposition, I'm, I'm holding up finger quotes here, is impact. I want people to have deeper discussions around... Bodies and life and affect and matter and technology and ecology and more. And others might be, I want something pretty on the wall, and I don't want to devalue that either,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that takes us into what I think is one of the most challenging aspects of your work that is very present in the world after us. I mean, it's been there in many of your other other projects, and that is the role of the aesthetic and particularly the political implications of the aesthetic, because it seems to me for a long time the aesthetic was in a way granted to conservative and right-wing thinkers. And anybody who saw themselves as a progressive artist, as in any way an activist artist, was uncomfortable with the notion of the aesthetic. And what you've brought I know drawing on a number of of theorists, one of them, Sean Cubitt, I was very glad to see. And I've just picked up his Aesthetic Politics, which has just come out. So that's going to be interesting to read. But can you talk us through the notion of of re-energized engagement with the aesthetic and how that manifests in, I think, particularly the world after us, because that's one of your works that at least some of our listeners are likely to have encountered.
0: I will say, first and foremost, that funnily enough, you know, 17 years ago, the birth of my first child made me want to make pretty things again, seeing th- things through their eyes on a personal level. But on a more political level, I would say probably my second book, The Ecological Aesthetics, Artful Tactics for Humans, Nature, and Politics, which it was a really fun book to write. It was a number of case studies of contemporary art, very much like poetic and scholarly collection of stories about art artists and their materials, Saying that ecology, aesthetics, and ethics are inherently entwined, that these things are interconnected in every which way. And I have a lovely little like glossary throughout the book that's in the margins that kind of plays with defining and redefining terms. But for me, I'm very much in the same mind of Jacques Rancière here, who, who looks at politics and aesthetics as two sides of the same coin. At its core, aesthetics are the style with which we do things. And that should never be underestimated. It's an argument. It's a manifestation. It's a substantiation. It's how we convince. It's a power that we can have. And even that stripped down aesthetics that progressives used was an argument too. Like the idea that if something isn't pretty, it lacks aesthetics is false. It is always the style with which we do things. And I am very interested in bringing new dialogues and new ideas and new people into that space. And I'm not scared to use Humor, beauty, irony, disgust, smells,
1: and puns, and
0: puns, right? Funny puns, dad puns. You know, you know when a joke's a dad joke, it becomes apparent. Oh, that's a fully grown joke right there. So that kind of study of the different style with which people do things and how they make a case, how they make an argument became central to my practice more generally. And I would say then this kind of keys into, I have almost like three levels of engagement that my aesthetics try to address in any given show. And the first being on an intimate level, I want to be overwhelmed. I want to start asking questions around my own politics, materials and concepts. Like one question I often say is like, what if everybody in the world kept their phones for just one more year before they traded them I Imagine the difference that would make. So that's the kind of intimate systemically. And I think this is the the biggest potential for change, right? It's too big for us to individually make a difference at this point. Although we should, we need to lobby. One of the things I found out during this research was the the waste that we produced from when we dig up the raw materials to make our phones and tablets and laptops and more, far exceed the waste of when we throw them out. And they're horrendous for the environment. You know, the FDA regulates what we put in our bodies. Why not regulate the world around us? Import and export laws are there to increase profits rather than decrease waste and more. But finally, inspirationally, I try to reach a broad audience overall for my work, even though certain pockets within it will be a little geared towards a younger audience, an older audience, a specific audience, but overall I'm hoping there's enough to draw people in. And my target is honestly like 16 to 50. I know that's broad, but I'm looking at people who may pursue a career that is slightly different based on what they see or hear or change what they're doing in the space where they are in some way, shape or form to make a difference. And that leveraging of aesthetics on the intimate, systemic, and inspirational is my truest of hopes.
1: And as you've described, in your projects that just stay with the world after us and your interaction with various scientists, engineers, labs around that, what do artists bring to that engagement? I mean, you use the very interesting phrase that scientists are experimenting, that artists are exploring. What does that actually come down to in an actual interaction with science labs around a long-term art project like The World After Us?
0: It's a good question, and there's a lot there. I'll give two examples, one with Johannes Lehmann and the other with Konstantin Sobolov. So Johannes Lehmann, the recent paper we wrote for MIT Press, and it was just published, is called Novelty versus Utility, the Problem of the Problem in Contemporary Research. And we're looking at the different ways that modes of thinking, not output, differentiate across fields. So for example, like the scientific method is not the same as a science produced product. The way that an artist might approach production is not the same as an artwork or output, same with design. And I I often joke, designers define problems, engineers and scientists solve problems, artists, we create problems. But what I mean by that is we go off the beaten path. We go to places where questions can't even be articulated yet, much less solutions. And so one of the things that Johannes kind of talks about frequently and what this paper addresses is that scientists or engineers are trained to answer questions, but they're not trained to ask them very well. And in fact, most funding comes in when you've already answered the question. (laughs) And so he wants to see more artists helping him ask questions. He wants us to teach scientists and engineers how to think differently about what the science might afford where it might bring us to. It's also how I got funded for my PhD. Professor Dr. Linder Doyle, who is now the provost of Trinity College, interestingly enough, at the time she was an engineering professor, brought in artists and humanities scholars alongside our engineers precisely to ask different questions, to brainstorm differently, to think differently. It
1: was called the disruptive engineering
0: Correct, correct. And in fact, our job was to be novel, right? And one of the things Giannis and I talk about is like, you could be novel and utilitarian at the same time, but you can't attempt to be novel and utilitarian at the same time. Once you move towards a space of trying to solve a problem, inherent in it is it is the potential answers. So you have to be willing to break shit to make mistakes, to not know where the matter is leading you. And in fact, I often say artists are material thinkers, like designers, we empathize, we understand a problem, right? Engineers try to solve the problem. Artists, it's like dump a garbage bag on the table and see what you can make out of it. It's why we so often confuse medium and discipline. What's your discipline? Paint, what's your discipline? Ceramics, right? It's because we think in ink. We allow the world around us to be folded into what we do. And so how this materialized, for example, with Konstantin Sobolov was he saw the work I was doing and it inspired him. And he said, like, I have all this waste in my lab from making concrete. What could you do with that? And I decided that we could do something both aesthetic and recycling. So he and I found in Surplus all these servers, literal servers, server farms with huge circuit boards. And so we sliced them up, and then we took the waste from his concrete making to make a new form of concrete that was only made out of concrete waste, and backed them with circuit boards. And we we called it circuit board walk, but cha. And this became a site-specific installation, 200 square feet of circuit-backed tiles in front of the engineering building at Binghamton University in upstate New York. And so he challenged me to think about, well, what about these other materials? This is a technology too. How else might we use this? What else might this become in an aesthetic and utilitarian space? And again, like I separate those out in process, but not in product, because this was both making a case, making an argument to the engineers on campus and also using this waste from both the e-tech space and from concrete. And then, you know, I got to push him to design concrete out of concrete waste. And so Johannes and I currently were actually working on him. This is a really fun project. He and I have done a number of workshops. He came here to Milwaukee when we did it, and he came to Binghamton when we did the show there. He didn't come to Crassel there. But we've done a bunch of workshops that we call question machines, where we have people make physical games that help them ask questions that he might pose in his lab. We're now working on fine-tuning our own artificial intelligence, where we would train it first on all of his hypotheses to figure out like what a good science question might look like and then cross train it on, for example, Shakespeare or my writing and see what that introduction of novelty might do. And so the two outputs we're looking for, there are one, poetics, right? This is multimodal output. but two, even if there's just one, if it spits out 3000 questions and there's just one question he never would have asked that he can pose in his lab that might have a novel and useful answer. How magical is that?
1: <laughs> Last big question, which hope we can unpack a little bit. Your description of the artist in relation to the scientist is the artist is prepared to break things, is prepared to fail, is asked questions. Those are also characteristics of the entrepreneur. And you, of course, have also been teaching at the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center and I was struck by your curriculum, because obviously innovation and entrepreneurship is big here now at WITS in South Africa. Yeah. Well, to save us from a collapsed developmental state where, you know, most of our students just cannot get employment, including highly qualified postgraduate scientists, engineers, they delivering Uber Eats. And what struck me about your approach to Teaching innovation and entrepreneurship at the Luba center is it, it's much broader than I think we recognize here it's it's not about just commercializing a product. you seem to be promising students who take your courses who enter your challenges a wider, richer way of living
0: thanks for that I don't know if I'd say promising, but it's certainly a hope. yeah, thank you for bringing that up, and I think it's a really good point so for me. The Startup Challenge, which is what the the program I'm a director of at the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center, it began as the more traditional, oh, you have a tech idea, we're going to help you build a prototype and start up a business. And then what we found over time was that the tools and frameworks we were using were really good in other spaces. They were good for entrepreneurship. They were good for problem solving. And, you know, everyone at that center is interdisciplinary. And I think it's honestly the most interdisciplinary space on campus. Funnily enough, Ilya Avdiv, who is kind of the co-founder of the program and also a very close personal friend, when he initially asked me to be part of it, I said, no way. Like, I didn't become an art professor to teach business. And he challenged me on that. He said, is entrepreneurship really business? Like, aren't you already an entrepreneur as an artist? And so over time, I came to understand entrepreneurship rather as sustaining your passions. And I look at those tools the same way I put on an engineering hat when I'm coding, or an art hat when I want to break things or explore. I think of sketching as being an important tool. You know, I think of storytelling as being an important tool. There are times when I put on my entrepreneurship hat and that's not necessarily like, how do I make money? That's how do we sustain this, right? Most of the startups we work with, we found over time are like yoga studios and food trucks and people for whom they just want to work for a small company or themselves in a space that shares their values. And so if you go into a room and say, how many of you want to start up your own business? How many of you want to be entrepreneurs? Very few of them raise their hands. But if you say, how many of you want to work for yourself or for a small company that shares your values? They all raise their hand. And so the questions we start to ask were, one, how do we sustain our passions? And we use things like the business model canvas and lean launch. How do you solve problems? And we use things like design thinking. How do you discover who's going to pay for that? And we use customer discovery and the mom test there. But then also we invent some of our own tools. So we've made something called the Model Entrepreneur Compass that sits on top of the business model canvas that says, how do we make sure that our values align with our value proposition? It gives you a space in which you can say no to where the money is coming from. You're allowed to feel, you're allowed to say no, that doesn't gel well with me and make a different choice. We have a social entrepreneur in residence in addition to a more traditional entrepreneur in residence. Uh, which is not that uncommon, but it's something we pride ourselves in. As far as I know, we're the only entrepreneurship center in the world that has a well entrepreneur-in-residence.
1: Can you just unpack those, because a big topic for us here at WITS, and I think it's the same in a lot of South African universities, is there's an instinctive hostility from colleagues in the humanities, social sciences, to the term innovation, and to the notion of entrepreneurship, they see it as irredeemably capitalist and aligning with capitalist values.
0: As did I, you know, with that story I just told you, right, when I first encountered it. And we just have to make it our own, I think. And look, in the, same, the same is true here. You know, I remember we had a fellowship here a couple of years ago where we were trying to get more humanities scholars and artists involved at the center. And we kind of pitched you know, the way that we want to do experiential learning and sustenance, of, like the, the way I'm describing it. And we had a number of humanities scholars say, bullshit, I'm going to apply and I bet I get rejected. And they all got accepted and they freaking loved it, right? But you've got to practice what you preach in that space as well as outside that space. So first of all, again, you need to rethink entrepreneurship as a way of sustaining your passion and your values within the capitalist society that we live in. That's first and foremost. Second, I think it's really important to when necessary, get away from the language of entrepreneurship. Like Even the word value proposition, I'm comfortable with it now, but I wasn't when I started. And so I think bringing in a social entrepreneur, he owns and is president of a nonprofit and he mostly works with nonprofits, but we also like to differentiate between nonprofit and for-profit in where their funding is allowed to come from. You can be a for-profit company that's in the public interest. And in fact, sometimes the choice is better because you can have a greater impact. And so social innovation is more interested in impact than it is in money, but you still got to sustain yourself. So you still got to eat. You still got to you know, pay your employees and you don't do any justice to them or yourself if you burn out and you can't do it. Well, Entrepreneur in Residence, she's an oncology meditation specialist, a cancer survivor herself, and she does two things. First and foremost, burnout is common for entrepreneurs. They don't give themselves time to take care of themselves, self-compassion and self-care are lacking in contemporary society. And so we make, in addition to like the standard, like Stokes and, you know, get out of your seats and fun, innovation. We actually make meditation a core part of our workshops. We make self-reflection an important part. We, at the ground level, make sure people understand that their values take precedence over where the money is coming from, even though they have to find somewhere the money's coming from that they're comfortable with they're allowed to say no. And additionally, she helps startups that are around well-being more generally, so products and services that are within that space. And so I'm not going to defend late capitalism to humanities scholars who hate the language of entrepreneurship. I am going to say that even the kinds of thinking that developed within that space can be used to leverage all kinds of Things that arts thinking, humanities thinking, engineering thinking, science thinking can't. And while, like you know, science and engineering delivered the atom bomb, right? We're not going to say we're therefore no science and engineering. (laughs) And similarly, where late capitalism delivered us Donald Trump, if I can use an extreme, we shouldn't say that that entrepreneurial thinking then is devoid of potential. And so I think leveraging that space, and I I think, to be honest, the the cryptocurrency space also taught me this. Like, I couldn't believe when you look at the structure of a DAO, for example, a decentralized autonomous organization, like it is basically a commune. It was basically a co-op. And here's this like highly post-capitalist, built-for-money, libertarian, anti-government thing that they're leveraging towards socialism. That's dope, right? Like, that's so cool. (laughs)
1: Nathaniel, I see we've come to the end of our time. I hope we can find opportunity to talk further. This has been a great conversation.
0: Thanks. Goodbye, everybody out there in Webland.
1: <laughs> You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christ Dougherty, the chair of research in the VIT School of Arts, and my guest, the American artist, writer and teacher, Professor Nathaniel Stern. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.